has he blown it? That's the question that's been on the lips of all Labour watchers this weekend as Keir Starmer's bungled reshuffle left his personal authority in tatters. The next question that follows from that, if he is mortally wounded, who will benefit? Now, we hope it's the left. We'll be talking about how the left can have a strategy to benefit if Keir Starmer does tumble, crumble. Um, But there's reasons to not be that confident. I mean, for me, number one among them is the weakness of of the left in the PLP, both numerically and in terms of people who could credibly pose a leadership challenge or even short of that, who can credibly challenge Keir Starmer and how people listen to them. That doesn't mean, though, that there are no left-wing MPs with the ability to strategize, to persuade, and potentially even to inspire. One of them is Clive Lewis, who will be joining us a little bit later on tonight's show. Um, first of all, I'm joined by my own personal inspiration, Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm. I will not be throwing my hat in the ring for leadership of the Labour Party. So I'll put those rumours to rest. Uh, I'm not planning to to get in there anytime soon. It will never happen. <laughs> I can guarantee you. <laughs> As you can imagine, we're going to be mainly focusing on Labour tonight, but we're also going to give you a quick update on the latest with Britain's COVID epidemic. A, a good news story, actually. Um, and we are going to close the show with a discussion um, about what's currently going on in Jerusalem. Really, really awful scenes. I've got two great guests um, speaking about that. Um, Let's start with what we've learned over the last 24 hours. Um, And this is essentially some details about Angela Rayner's new job and then some of the other shadow cabinet positions. What I want to focus on, first of all, is the Angie Keir standoff, the dispute that took place between them over the past 48 hours, what it means right now for the party. So what we have learnt is that the original plan was for Keir Starmer to put Angela Rayner in health. Um, So that would be replacing Jonathan Ashworth. Um, She refused. She is now Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Shadow First Secretary of State, Deputy Leader of the Opposition and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. So she's got a lot of jobs. Um, under a belt. Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, that's shadowing Michael Gove's job. Shadow First Secretary of State, um, so that the actual First Secretary of State, that's Dominic Raab. It's essentially Deputy Prime Minister if Boris Johnson can't attend PMQs, and it'll be Dominic Raab versus Angela Rayner. We can go to a thread from Angela Rayner explaining her new roles. Um, so she tweeted, I came into politics as a shop steward standing up for care workers on the minimum wage. In my new roles, I will focus on the future of work and the future of our economy, working with our trade union movement to deliver good, well-paid jobs in every region and every community. I will take the fight to the Tories on their dodgy contracts and sleaze, and I will set out Labour's policy to replace Tory cronyism and cash for mates with an insourcing revolution so that public services are delivered in the public interest, not for private profit. I will work tirelessly to reform our party and deliver a policy agenda that will enable us to reconnect with the voters that we need to win, especially in our traditional heartlands, and show that the Labour Party speaks for the working class. This is our founding mission. And she goes on, I also want to thank friends from all across the Labour Party and our movement who have been in touch with me. United we stand, divided we fall, the past we inherit, the future we build, solidarity. So she's really coming out fighting there, especially saying, I I thank you for all the support you've given me over the last weekend, which is essentially her saying, by the way, Keir, when you tried to sack me, lots of people spoke out against it, didn't they? I'm sure she's feeling 
fairly popular, I suppose, um, at the moment. Obviously not with the leader's office, but it seems like they'd fallen out a while ago. Anyway, now one of the developments that added to the farce of the weekend was that after getting all these new jobs, so four of them, I think two of them she already had, Rayner's team sort of spun this as a win. You know, Keir Starmer wanted to demote her. She ended up getting, well, we'll discuss later whether or not it was a promotion, but she ended up getting all these jobs that she wasn't going to originally get. However, while her team was saying this is a win, this is a promotion, Starmer's team pushed back against the claim. Um, this was Harry Cole from The Sun. He tweeted yesterday, her allies, so that's Rayner's allies, said the multiple jobs added up to a promotion. But Starmer's supporters rejected that as spin. Anger after a day of chaos triggered by early leaks overshadowed silver linings on Super Thursday pounding. A total normal shadow reshuffle from team competence. Uh, so very dismissive there from Harry Cole. And what I wanted to focus on there, though, was, was Starmer's team now briefing that this was not a promotion. Um, if, if Angela Rayner is saying it's a promotion, that's spin from her people, which is odd because it was the spin of team starmer on sunday morning that angela rayner didn't actually get sacked she got promoted so you remember if you watched yesterday's show we showed that clip of ian murray um speaking to sophie ridge on sky saying no no she hasn't been sacked she's been promoted sophie ridge asked him to promote her to what he says oh i don't know i don't know what she's been promoted to but she's been promoted now they're saying actually a demotion if this all sounds a bit ridiculous which it does Wait until you hear this nugget from the Times on the context of the original fallout between Keir Starmer and his deputy. So the Times reported today. In perhaps the strangest indication of disunity, Labour sources claim that a party official eating in an Indian restaurant hundreds of miles from Westminster last summer heard a woman saying that her child worked for Rayner, did not like Starmer and wished Jeremy Corbyn was still leader. When reported back to London, this was taken as a sign of disloyalty at the heart of Rayner's operation. The allegation was forcefully denied by Rayner's team after its members had consulted their mothers. <laughs> So the original beef, apparently, I'm sure there's more to it, but one of the original beefs was that someone overheard someone who was talking about being the mother of someone who worked for Angela Rayner who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn in a curry house hundreds of miles from London. All, all very odd. Dahlia, I don't know how gripped you have been to Twitter and to I suppose Sky News or however you consume all of this nonsense. Do you think Keir Starmer has been significantly weakened by this? Yeah, I mean, I don't see how he comes back from something like this. And what he is demonstrating here is shocking political judgment. And we say that not from just from the perspective of, you know, not liking him because he has made an enemy of the left or because he has, you know, un unprovoked started an incredibly brutal war with progressives in the left of the party. But because for his own, from his own perspective, the sacking of Angela Rayner was just such a poor, poor exercise of judgment, not only because, you know, and I think that there is something obviously to the, the fact that, that sacking, you know, one of the most prominent Northern women in the party is, is a poor, exercise of judgment but I also think that we shouldn't act like just having a northern woman with a working class background in a high position of power is going to fix the systemic issues that we have in the Labour Party right now but also because Angela Rayner is so popular within the parliamentary Labour Party as we can see as we we have known for such a long time by the number of nominations she got and the fact that really Angela Rayner occupies a very unique position and therefore is a very powerful asset to Keir Starmer, if his uh, if his sort of 
brand is to unify the Labour Party, but also because Kisama doesn't have the membership. Him and those around him have made their opinions of the membership very clear. They have nothing but contempt for the members. They call the members trots, cranks, you know, including all of the people that go out and canvas and have canvassed for hours and hours for their own campaigns. They have nothing but contempt essentially for, for the members. And so if you don't have the membership, you've got to have the PLP. You can't, you can't have neither. Otherwise, you really have no route to, to maintaining any kind of discipline or, or integrity or, or faith of the party. Your, your position will become very, very tenuous. And so to willingly throw away the PLP on top of not having the membership, I don't understand what he thinks his path to sustaining power in the party is beyond another year maximum. I don't understand how he sees that happening without either of those levers, because Jeremy Corbyn always had one of them. Jeremy Corbyn always had the members um, and he always had the base, um, but he didn't have the PLP. The the whole point with Keir Starmer is he had the PLP and now he's thrown that away by essentially transferring power to a very, very small minority of people who have repeatedly lost leadership elections um, and who have repeatedly backed losing candidates and thrown away someone who, and also, you know, another thing, this whole idea that Angela Rayner was so disloyal. Angela Rayner, I never saw Angela Rayner ever depart from the party line, even at times when she really should have, you know, for example, around the sacking of Rebecca Long Bailey. Times where she really needed to, she didn't. So to sack someone who was not only incredibly loyal, but who is an incredible asset for you in the PLP it's poor judgment and it tells the British public that this is not a man who's going to be able to actually keep a country together. Well, I think the message it's sending at this point in time is especially to the MPs, because as as we said yesterday, I'm not sure how much the general public follow this stuff. But what's happening now, I think, is that all of his allies in Parliament, or not so much his his strong allies, but all the people who were, who assumed that he was this competent Mm -hmm. guy who could potentially take them into government or, you know, could at least competently oversee the party while they, you know, euthanize the left, I think is probably their plan. <laughs> They're now having second thoughts because they think this guy is completely useless. Mm. You know, he can't find his way out of a paperback. Yeah, it's the incompetence, which again, you know, this whole idea of being a competent operator was so integral to his brand. That was all projected on him, by the way. That was never anything that you could see. I mean, the man was a fervent supporter of a second ref- of the second referendum. So we can't really say that there's no evidence, but that was part of his brand, but also he was given a gift in his election. You know, he had at the very beginning, he had the benefit of the doubt of a lot of the of left wing members, you know, a lot of left wing members, me not included. Um, not that I'm a member, but you know, in terms of people who are interested in the Labour Party. But, you know, <laughs> benefit of the doubt, you know, people like my mom, sort of, let's see what he can do. And he had, you know, the confidence of the soft left, and he had, you know a lot of the Labour right willing to give him a shot and he squandered it and I don't think he can come back from it. Let's have a look a bit more at Angela Rayner's position and where it leaves her because as I said she's been spinning it as a more powerful job than her previous one. Starmer's Starmer's team changed their story basically every hour. It's a demotion, no it's a promotion, no it's a demotion. People on the left seem a bit split on this as well. There was a left winger who spoke to Alex Wickham from Politico in the morning email. So a former front bench. We can get up this quote, which is very interesting. Wickham wrote in his morning email, one former front bencher told Playbook she had folded on the first round and was now powerless. The person lamented, the soft left has been routed from the party. It's a complete coup d'etat from the right. Over the next few years, they'll be liquidated from the front bench and shuffled out of existence. I mean, it's an interesting comment. I mean, I think there's a lot of 
true for it in the you know to the extent that's what Keir Starmer wants to do. I do think that so long as Keir Starmer is unable to change the leadership rules, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they do try and do that quite soon. That should be you know, really resisted. But if he does really make an enemy of all of the soft left, then you could be looking at a leadership contest before the next general election, especially if he has some you know more poor by-election results. I suppose what his team are, are guessing is that even if you get even if you kick the soft left out of your front bench, out of your top team, they're also terrified of a Corbynite winning again, that they'll just sort of go along with it because they're, they're too terrified of the alternative. They'd prefer to just stay in um, low risk, low stress, junior ministerial positions. They can write some policy papers, get paid, occasionally go on sort of like a second rate radio so- station and and sort of, you know, pass their days like like that. But I think if, if he does... M- m- if he tries to humiliate people like he humiliated Angela Rayner, that's when he's at serious risk. Because if you try and humiliate enough people, that's when you end up having a leadership challenge. Um, Dahlia, do you think Angela Rayner was correct to accept her position? I guess she's still wanting to kind of, at least at the moment, I think it will be a while before we see any serious leadership challenges because who wants who wants to be at the helm of this ship, uh, quite frankly? So I think she's probably sort of, putting her ducks in a row and sort of thinking, okay, I'll accept this for now and sort of figure out what my long-term strategy is, is going forward. But especially, you know, a lot of the reports that we've had coming out is that this is not a sort of one-off moment of disagreement that actually she has felt shut out and disrespected for a very long time now. Um, And not to mention as well that Angela Rayner, you know, I have my critiques of her. I'm not a massive fan or anything but she was the only person in the kind of top echelons of the Labour Party with any 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 morsel of a relationship to the Labour Party and to the Labour movement sorry um and so I think also what part because we have to think of the what was who is the audience of this reshuffle you know I think we have to think I always think it's funny when in response to bad local elections parties sort of reshuffle their cabinets around like anyone gives a fuck um as if people sitting in Batley and Spen are like oh I wasn't going to vote for the Labour Party when Annalise Dodds was shadow chancellor but Rachel Reeves my goodness you know it changes everything the audience for this reshuffle as always with reshuffles is lobby journalists and it's you know major business you know big business major private donors it's a plea to them basically saying please can we go back to that lovely honeymoon period where you guys loved me for no reason other than i was a sentient human being that wasn't jeremy corbyn um so please can we go back to that and so he is trying to cultivate that again by culling anyone who has any connection with the labor movement through signaling a return to blairism and thinking because they're thinking to themselves oh well you know the last time we had the media on our side we did this this and this so let's just do that again you know trying to kind of recreate conditions um that existed 20 years ago but they're not realizing that the establishment media and indeed like the various establishments that make up the character of the state are always going to prioritize the conservative party especially when the conservatives are at the moment keeping together the social fabric of the country seeming to have command over the social fabric of the country and it's only when the tories fail at and to keep a lid on that social contract that a right wing labor party will be allowed to squeak in and 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 have power whilst the tories rebuild themselves so but that's 
Firstly, that is only going to work on the schedule of the Conservative Party and the lobby media. But it demonstrates, again, this lack of realisation, this lack of understanding that there has to be a different pathway to power. And I'm not saying that that's easy. Um, you know, there are systemic barriers to a Labour Party government right now, ones that are very difficult to overcome. They're ones that are not going to be, they're not going to go away just by having, you know, a slick operator or a slick leader or even having, you know, a set of popular policies. And those systemic factors, they include things like the media, the concentration of the media, the monopoly model of the media that is even worse than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It's also about the geography of class right now, the fact that we are seeing, you know, the precarious uh, young working class increasingly concentrating into urban centres, meaning that vast ways of our electoral map are comprised of people who are propertied, um, who who have a very different kind of relationship to class and, you know, that kind of... the. The, the intense urbanization that defines our economy right now means that the, the, the geography of the, of the working class is very difficult for the Labour Party to kind of turn into an electoral victory. It's also, you know, policies like the one that we're going to see, we're likely to see come through around, you know, having national ID necess being necessary for to vote in, in general elections. So it's a very, there's a very difficult roadmap to power. They're very difficult systemic blocks. And Keir Starmer is trying to short circuit that systemic issue by simply trying to get the media on his side. But it's not going to work. And so what we're going to see is a repetition of the same mistakes that we have been seeing that have consistently and chronically led to labor losses. And that is epitomized in the fact that Angela Rayner is even being seen as too connected to the labor movement to be in the higher echelons of, of the party. So I think that's what we're seeing uh, play out right now. And it still shows this attempt to short circuit deep strategic organizational issues that we need someone who has excellent judgment, excellent creativity, excellent understanding in order to develop a model and a pathway to power that can happen despite those those obstacles. And trying to just cozy up and get the validation of the lobby media it's not going to work and it never will no matter who no matter how much you alienate your base it's not going to cut it anymore is it one background to this reshuffle other than the names involved was also the numbers so before the reshuffle, Labour had 27 shadow cabinet ministers. Um, there were only 21 actual cabinet ministers. So this was already um, a situation where we had some shadow cabinet ministers for positions that didn't exist in the actual cabinet. This was because Labour created roles such as shadow secretary of state for mental health. They're like, this is important enough that it would be a ministry where we in government. Now, before the reshuffle, there were rumours that Starmer wanted to reduce um, the number of, of shadow cabinet ministers to save costs, because every time you have a shadow cabinet minister, the part is obliged to pay for a certain number of advisors for them. So say, let's, let's cull this, let's get it down closer to 21, like the number of actual cabinet ministers. However, because it was such a poorly handled um, reshuffle, because he couldn't sack anyone, after the reshuffle, he could sack just a couple of people. There are now 33 members of the shadow cabinet. So it's got even, even bigger. Um, I think we have Clive in now. Clive, you're here. First of all, I want your general take on, I suppose, the events of the past 48 hours. Do you think Keir Starmer is mortally wounded from it all? Yes. Yeah. May have seen my tweet. I, I kind of summed it up as a mess. 
which in my circles just means it's the kind of thing that happens when you you wake up after a particularly messy night on a few drinks and you're just looking around your kitchen and it's just completely trash and it's just a mess. Uh, and I just think, unfortunately, look, I'm going to be really, I'm going to be really careful here. I have noted from some commentary um, on this that there is a sense of schadenfreude about you know, kind of deserving, uh, they deserve what's happened. And I think we have to understand that whilst they may have made poor decisions that have left that have led them to where they are. Ultimately, it's the people that I came into politics for um, and the issues that I care about passionately and many of the people who are watching this program do are the people, those are the issues that suffer. Those are the people that are going to suffer. And whatever we think of Keir Starmer and his decision-making or lack of, um, the reality is this is a mess that will affect all progressives. You know, and I was saying the other day, you know, you'll see Greens and others up and down on this. Ultimately, it's it's just people shuffling a handful of votes between each other. This 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 is a problem for all progressives in this country. Anyone that wants to see a kind of country that I think we all want to live in, this is problematic for all of us. We have to sort it out. Uh, implicit in that is those who are making the mess listening, and they're not. Um, but you know that's often the way with our leaders. The hubris of being in leadership is that you don't have to listen anymore. You know best, and clearly that isn't the case. Um, it's not been limited. It's not limited to Keir Starmer. That's uh, a number of people. I think Keir is in a weak position. I think, I think he could have possibly come out swinging this week if the shadow cabinet reshuffle had not been such a catastrophe. Um, and I think it was a complete shambles. I think they know that. He knows that. And I think he's, I think his authority has been undermined. I mean, I saw the off the record briefings, people, the way that people were talking about him it's going to be difficult to come back from that and that's a that's a problem for all of us um it's a problem for Keir Starmer it's a problem for the Labour Party you only have to look now I talk to journalists the Guardian from from uh, other papers uh, other organizations uh, and institutions and there's a sense I, I think there was a sense initially that this was uh, someone uh who was serious that they you know this is someone who who could take Labour back to winning ways that's now moved into the realms it's gone. It's moved into the realms, basically, of ridicule uh, and despair by some journalists about what's happening. So I think it is difficult to come back. Um, but that doesn't mean that work can't be done in the interim to try to rebuild. It doesn't mean that maybe now, maybe they'll want to listen a little bit more. I don't know whether that's the case. That may be wishful thinking on my part. But to be quite frank, it looks like the chest is pretty empty. We've got Annalise Dodds, um, who's going to be chairing the policy Review. We've got Angela Rayner in a more beefed up position. You know, I was listening. Is it a promotion? Isn't it? Well, she's going to have to make as much of it as she can. Um, is there now an opportunity for us to really grip uh, how we how we form policy, make it as democratic as possible, and learn? There's a massive energy that's come out of the Corbyn movement uh, that's come out of the left over the last five years. Some of the think tanks and thinkers that are coming out, some of the ideas that are there now. There's a rich uh, and diverse uh, amount of potential policy areas, which I think the party can tap into. But, you know, look, your, your speaker before was explaining this isn't just about policy. It isn't just about who's leading the party. It isn't just about who's in the shadow cabinet. That's not, that's, this is existential. This is structural. There is a shift taking place, and it has been taking place for a long time, uh, in the voting patterns in this country. You know, the Labour Party was formed more than 100 years ago. That world has more or less disappeared. Your, your, you know, your guest was talking about the fact that, you know, there was a concerted effort to try to sideline someone who was seen as too close to organised labour. Well, I think that was true. But 
ask yourself this question. Why would you be able to get away with that if organized labor wasn't in a particularly weak position uh, already? Organized labor, the labor movement, is struggling at the moment. I know we have millions of members. It is still our best hope for being for change and creativity. But at the moment, the trade unions are looking in many ways as weak and irrelevant in some, in some, in some respects as the Labour Party. That's not all their own fault because they've been attacked for the last 40 years by government after government. And the last Labour government, New Labour, never reversed any of, the, any of that legislation. But the reality is the Labour movement needs to be able to come up with more ideas, become more creative. I mean, I've been reading articles today about the cooperative movement, the Preston model, about why, why isn't it that the labor movement, the trade union movement, the kind of consumer cooperative movement are, are using a similar model themselves to build uh, support, to build capacity, whether that's in media, whether that's in any particular area, inwards, inside uh, working class communities, inside our media power bases, inside the things which we take and use uh, every day. So, you know, there are things that we can do, but we have to start thinking outside the box. And, and I would say, if you really want, in terms of a, a policy review, a policy agenda to kind of tap into that rich creativity and make that policy view as democratic as possible. Bring from the bottom up, not from the top down. And that's what we've done for too long. So this is all nice. You know, our audience probably thinking everything you're suggesting is, is nice. It sounds like a nice, a nice idea. But uh, the Labour Party currently has a leader with no interest in doing any of that. And it, it seems as if actually there isn't much leverage outside of the leader's office, which would be why many people would be, I suppose, cheering Keir Starmer struggling because they'd be saying, look, to have the kind of creative, mobilizing vision that you're talking about there, the party essentially needs a different leader. Possibly. In terms of seeing a kind of radical change that how the party operates uh, from a bottom up, less centralized, is possible, yeah. But, you know, one of the things I think is politics isn't who, it's how. And I'm tired of the beauty pageants. You know, you get it on Twitter. This person will make a good leader. This person, Andy, it's Andy Burnham one week. It's Clive Lewis another week. It's Angela Rayner another week. You know, it's, it's, it's Zara Sultana the week after, or all at the same time. Why do we look to individuals on a white horse to come and do this? Because, I, I mean, you know, I understand, I understand, with all due respect, because that's, that's how it works, isn't it? It works at the moment. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to look to ourselves. Maybe that's where, maybe we need to look to leadership to ourselves more often. Uh, have more confidence about our movements, have more confidence about leading ourselves rather than looking to others to do that in Westminster. I just think at the moment, you know, from my perspective, representative democracy is in crisis. There is a crisis of democracy. I think the representative class have become a class unto themselves. There have been books written on this that have been around for the donkey's years, which explain that once you create an organisation and have elected representatives, they become a class unto themselves. And I'm part of that class, but, you know, I can still, it doesn't mean I can't see it. And I just think, you know, one of the things we could be talking about is a lot more about direct, deliberative democracy, empowering people. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot that we can be doing ourselves. And I understand, you know, look, it's, it's interesting. To, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of Dallas, isn't it? With different drama and scenes going on with Angela Rayner and Bobby Ewing and everything else happening on the shadow cabinet and who's in and who's out. And it's interesting. It's like a soap opera and everyone can get behind it and get their popcorn and start eating. But actually, in terms of actually changing the world we live in, building a better country... Do I want Dallas deciding how that operates, how it works? No, I don't. And that's what it feels like to me. It's a circus um, and it's upsetting. I have to admit, a lot of people, uh, like a lot of people, I had nightmares last night. I had two night sets of nightmares, um, recurring nightmares, which was, I know what they are. I know why I have this particular nightmare. It was about a ghost. 
Um, and it's about me feeling powerless, powerless. And I feel powerless. I feel despondent at the moment. And, and I think there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way. So, you know, how do I respond to that? Well, you have to pick yourself up, dust yourself down and carry on with what you were doing, trying to build the movement, trying to build capacity, trying to do the thinking that needs to be done. Because at some point, Keir Starmer won't be there. At some point, there will be opportunities for change. But in that interim, I think we're going to have to do things ourselves. Look, Navarro Media is a classic example. You haven't waited for the mainstream media to turn around and start being fair to Labour. You've gone out and created this organisation yourself. But there, well, isn't, there isn't a first-class opposed to electoral system when it comes to media. Um, I'm going to get your comments on some more of these positions on the Shadow Cabinet. Let's go through some of the other shifts other than Anna Rayner. Um, so the other main promotions of the reshuffle included um, Alan Campbell, who is now Opposition Chief Whip. Um, he's been given the job after 10 years as a Deputy Whip also got Shabana Mood, who replaces Angela Rayner as National Campaign's coordinator. But the most high-profile promotion and the most significant one politically is what we're going to talk about next. The big move of the reshuffle, which was Rachel Reeves replacing Annalise Dodds as Shadow Chancellor. Now, Rachel Reeves is the object of suspicion would be the the kindest way to put it um, by many on the left because of an interview she gave to The Guardian in 2013 um, when she had just been promoted to Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions under the leadership of Ed Miliband. Now, if you've been on Twitter in the last 24 hours, you've probably seen this screenshot shared. This was the, the headline um, that accompanied that interview. It said, Labour will be tougher than Tories on benefits, promises new welfare chief. The subheading there, Rachel Reeves vows to cut welfare bill and force long-term jobless to take up work offers or lose state support. Um, now, that's obviously the headline. Let's go to what she actually said. Um, so in that interview, it's just as harsh, I have to say. Um, Nobody should be under any illusions that they are going to be able to live a life on benefits under a Labour government. If you can work, you should be working. And under our compulsory job guarantee, if you refuse that job, you forego your benefits. And that is really important. It is not an either or question. We would be tougher than the Conservatives. If they don't take it, the offer of a job, they will forfeit their benefit. But there will also be the opportunities there under a Labour government. We have got some really great policies, particularly around the jobs guarantee and cancelling the bedroom tax that show that we are tough and will not allow people to linger on benefits, but also that we are fair. Where there are pernicious policies like the bedroom tax, we will repeal them. Um, Clive, I want your commentary on this particular appointment. I mean, obviously, this was said in 2013, but this is the kind of rhetoric, the kind of politics, I think, that many of us hoped were sealed in a tomb within the Labour Party, right? This idea that you, you, you complain about people lingering on benefits, and now the person who is most associated with some of those policies is now in the top economic job. Does that worry you? Yeah. I mean, I obviously heard, as others have, that Rachel Reese has been on a journey, um, there are lots of people in politics that have been on journeys. That's fine. You know, we're all human. We all grow. We all change, hopefully, um, for the better. But ultimately, you know, what I see when I see too many members of my own party in politics talk about the need to occupy the centre ground of British politics, that was then considered, you know, austerity, benefit cheats, coming down hard on, on, on benefit cheats and benefits. This was considered where the middle ground of British politics was, which is, you know, I think we can frankly say bollocks. It's no longer there now. And this is the issue about the middle ground of British politics. It doesn't exist. It's a mythical place. Boris Johnson and the Tories are, are now handing us our backsides, showing us that the middle, the middle ground isn't a mythical place fixed in aspic. 
in politics. It shifts, it changes. It's wherever you want it to be and wherever you make the argument for it to be. And Boris Johnson in power has made the argument that creating money, creating money from the Bank of England and spending it, which was considered socialist heresy before, is now the thing that you can do to invest in green infrastructure, jobs and, and everything else that they're doing. And ultimately, I think that what the mistake too many people in our party, and Rachel Reeves is one of them, which you would call the kind of Blairite central tradition, is that they have this belief that there is a centergram. But what it actually is, is wherever the ruling dominant conservative party are, it's calibrating where they are and where the me mainstream media, which are often supportive of them are, and then calibrating yourself accordingly. That's not good enough. Not if you're a party of principle, not if you have values and you actually believe in something, actually believe in changing the world and making it better, unless you think that where they are, is somewhere to aspire to, because otherwise you're moving halfway towards them at the very least or further. So ultimately, you know, this is the whole notion of centrism. And I and, and for me, it's a busted flush. So if Rachel Reeves is no longer a centrist, maybe there's hope. If she is a centrist, then her and the rest of the party who consider themselves uh, centrists are going to be basically coordinating themselves. They're gonna be basically, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, orientating themselves off the Tories and wherever that is, and that means on their English nationalism, their growing authoritarianism, their anti-democracy credentials, all of that. And I just don't think that's something that's going to work. We're going to see ourselves nibbled to death by Greens and Liberal Democrats and new political parties that are now setting up. So ultimately, Rachel Reeves is, I think, uh, is, is representative of a strand in our party which has given up the ghost of socialism, never has been socialist. And we saw that under New Labour. And it's basically red team, blue team. It's our turn to be in charge now. Uh, and we won't make the argument for anything that's fundamentally different. We'll simply calibrate ourselves from where you are. And once you implode, once you grow tired of being in power, once the mainstream media and civil society have grown tired of you, it'll be our turn. But we won't be anything transformative about what we're doing. There won't be anything that changes the world in a fundamental way. And that's the problem with centrism. And that's why if it is dominant and back in the driving seat in our party again, we are not going to be heading towards electoral success which I think we can see uh, already. Because I'll tell you what centrism looks like with this government. It's standing in front of a flag with a pint. And frankly, uh, I think we saw the result of that in Hartlepool. And eating fish and chips when you're a vegetarian. That was a strange um, was that? <laughs> image from the campaign. Keir, Keir Starmer, there's a picture of him eating fish and chips when there's also interviews where he says he's a vegetarian. But it's a, it's a, it's a, minor, it's a minor point. I want to go to some comments from Rachel Reeves because I, I want to take seriously... Um, the idea that she has been on a journey. And there are some people who've said it who I don't you know, dismiss out of hand at all. And um, first of all, um, when it comes to this journey, I want to go to an interview Reeves did with the New Statesman earlier this year. She was asked specifically um, about that interview with The Guardian. And she told the New Statesman, I was trying to make the point, however badly, that spending more on benefits wasn't always a sign of success. And actually, the benefits bill goes up when society fails. Maybe I didn't always say it right, but that was the point I was trying to make. She goes on, look, perhaps it wasn't the right job for me at the right time. I definitely feel like a better politician and maybe more careful about what I say now than I was then. But I was trying to get a Labour government. I was trying to address some of our weaknesses. Now, to be honest, I don't think those last two sentences will be particularly reassuring to anyone. I was, I was trying to get a Labour government. I'll say anything to get one. Um, but let's put that to one side for a moment. The people um, who have come out and said maybe we should have an open mind are a 
former Corbyn and McDonald advisor and a former Corbyn advisor, um, both we've had on the on the show. So James Mills did work for John McDonald and then Corbyn. He says, controversial take for some. But on the Rachel Reeves appointment, I think it's worth keeping an open mind given her main recent interventions have been advocating insourcing. I think Blairite labels are not very accurate. It feels a more post-2011 Ed Miliband appointment, to be honest. And Andrew Fisher, um, who was obviously head of policy under Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, he, he got the credit for the 2017 manifesto. Um, he tweets, I think James Mills is right. Keep an open mind. People's views can change. Look at how Ed Miliband has gone from austerity light controls on immigration merchant to being invited to Navarra knees ups at conference policies, not personalities. Let's see some of the former. Um, Dahlia, I want to get your take on this, the idea of someone being on a journey. And I think actually here, for me, what's most interesting is the Ed Miliband comparison, because ultimately, if you are the shadow work and pension secretary, what you're saying is essentially the lines and the direction that was set by the leader. Ed Miliband was the leader. It was Ed Miliband who signed off all of that shit about people lingering on benefits, right? And I do actually think that Ed Miliband has changed. I do think that he does seem to be one of the, the proponents of a more transformative radical policy within the shadow cabinet. Should we give Rachel Reeves the same benefit of the doubt, therefore? I mean, I think the last thing that we need is another flip-flopping politician, someone who seems to go wherever the wind or their career takes them. Uh, so even if we were to give the benefit of the doubt, which I don't, um, that isn't exactly something to be excited about. And I also think the Ed Miliband question is so prescient here, actually, because the issue for Ed Miliband, because I actually don't know if Ed Miliband did go on a journey. I think he actually always kind of had that politics. Uh, many have said that, that you know, the 2017 manifesto was actually much more representative of his own politics than the 2015 manifesto was. And even it's, it was more representative of Ed Miliband's personal politics than it was of Jeremy Corbyn's personal politics. But he didn't have the metal. He didn't have the conviction. He didn't have the creativity to figure out how to make that politics a reality. So that's why he could be pushed around so easily by interest groups in the party or, you know, particularly the right of the party. It's why he always seemed so insecure around the right wing media, because that's where he was trying to get his validation, because he didn't have another idea of how to another pathway uh, to power, another route to power, another model of, of building power. Um, so if that is the truth that, you know, Rachel Reeves is sort of another is an Ed Miliband type, it doesn't bode well because it suggests the same problem, which is, OK, your personal politics might be OK, but you don't have any vision or creativity or astute analysis of how we're going to make that politics into a reality. So you just rely on triangulate triangulation. I also don't think it's the case because if you look at the spirit of the reshuffle, it's being done in a way that doesn't allow any breathing space for any remotely, you know, labor movement or, you know, progressive part of the party. Um, you know, that's what you do. That's what you're doing when you're trying to purge the party of anyone with any connection to the labor movement. That's what you're doing when you're sacking Angela Rayner. Um, you know, the part, as I said before, this is part of the party being handed over to a tiny minority of the PLP um, who, you know, haven't actually won much on their own merits um, in, in a very long time. And so when you look at that broader context of the reshuffle, um, the broader spirit, the broader purpose of it, that doesn't really contribute to this idea that Rachel Reeves is like a secret lefty or has come on some kind of journey. 
I think that this idea of, oh, I didn't express myself well enough, you express yourself in pretty clear terms. Like it, it looks like when you look at that interview, it's not, oh, I was caught off guard and I sort of didn't know what to say. It's I went into this interview with the clear intention that the Labour Party is to the right of the Conservative Party on the economy, that the Labour Party is not um, the party of those who have been left behind or left out of the economy. That doesn't really, really wash with me. I think even if I were to give her the benefit of the doubt, it shows a repeating of the mistakes that we saw under Ed Miliband um, and under Gordon Brown, which didn't lead to a victory. But if it isn't the case that she is, you know, secretly very different now, then it matches everything else that we think this this reshuffle represents. My personal take is that I, I think that the argument that, you know, she said it under the leadership of Ed Miliband should be taken seriously. But at the same time, both their histories before 2010 and after 2015 are very, very different. So, you know, Rachel Rees was quite proactively anti-Corbyn, resigned from the front bench. Ed Miliband was much more you know, soft on it. He was often, you know, almost soft outriding in the media. Obviously, he backed the coup, whatever. But in terms of the policy platform, he was really for it. Whereas Rachel Reeves was basically, you know, didn't want anything to do with it. She was waiting until that was all over so she could um, take the party to the right again. And I think that's that's tradition she comes from. I want to talk about alternative power bases in the party. Who could challenge Keir if and when the time comes? I know that Clive's saying we shouldn't we shouldn't obsess about individuals, but to be honest, my position here is that the Labour Party has a constitution. The only way to challenge someone was with an alternative candidate. Whilst we might want a different world, we're we're in one where you need a candidate. To that end, um, I'm going to show you the current bookie's favourite speaking today. This is Andy Burnham. Labour's got to stop uh, this sort of internal focus. You know, the civil war between those on the left of the party, those on the right of the party. It's just, from my point of view. That's absolutely pointless and destructive. You know, we have got a fantastic vision here in Greater Manchester. This is Labour in power showing what we can do. Buses under public control. These are Labour policies. Isn't it about time the party starts celebrating those things? It's, it's Labour mayors. We've got a new woman mayor in uh, West Yorkshire, Tracy Brabin. Steve Rotherham re-elected. Uh, eight Labour mayors elected at the weekend, but also across the country. There are now 10. I mean, this is a really positive story. Labour's been way too lukewarm about English devolution uh, so far, and it now enthusiastically needs to get behind it. So the party this morning, the shadow cabinet, everybody needs to listen to what the public were saying at the weekend. They say they are saying they like devolution here. They want more of it. And the party now needs to listen to that and, and show that it understands that was Andy Burnham sort of putting forward a positive vision of Labour backing devolution. Also interesting there, he he said, um, oh no, this was in a separate clip, actually, this was on The World at One. He said Labour should have emphasised higher pay for carers in their campaign, which is reported to have been what Rayner wanted to be pushed, but wasn't. And obviously, she was campaign coordinator or whatever, but didn't have absolute control over it. Um, Clive, I want your take here, because, you know, thinking about what are the potential challenges to Keir Starmer, for me, the obvious um, route seems to be some sort of Northwest axis, Andy Burnham, Angela Rayner, people around there who've been very successful, the Preston councillors, then tied with some soft left and, and left wing figures in the Labour Party, such as yourself, for example. So can you see those sort of coalitions being formed, not necessarily as sort of wreckers to try and spoil the Keir Starmer leadership, but forming a new alternative coalition that could potentially take control in Parliament and, and provide a, an alternative if, if the time did come when there were a leadership challenge? 
I mean, it's not beyond the realm's possibility. And um, obviously, the success, you know, Andy, um, success story up in Manchester, Greater Manchester, is something that people are looking at. There are other, there are other success stories around the country, but that's the highest profile and the biggest. And therefore, that's naturally going um, to attract, uh, you know, that, that attention from members and the movement who look to what, who look, you know, I think probably this weekend in despair at what's happening and then look where there's a sense of hope and you can see that there. Um, I would argue a few things. One, I think if Labour is going to talk about devolution, it has to be far more radical than that. I think we need to talk, because for me, devolution is about the sense of doling out power. And I think what we need to see in this country is probably something more along the lines of port sovereignty. So, you know, look, Scotland's in a, in a place where it's either going to leave the, the, the polity of the United Kingdom or it's going to be trying to for the foreseeable future. That has, that has kind of obvious problems for the Labour Party, which is considered a, a unionist party. Uh, and that also makes it more difficult for us to to win power, which means that the the, the big fight is uh, is in England, and that's always going to be trouble troublesome for us when you look at the demographics and you look at the psychology uh, of uh, of English parliamentary seats. And uh, you know, again, I would say it doesn't make a difference. Policies, leaders make a big difference. But I, I think when you look at the demographics and you look at the psychology and you look at what's happening with the balkanisation of the UK, I think you begin to see that it is going to be very difficult for us as the Labour Party on our own, getting into power with a reasonable majority to be able to enact transformative change over a period of time. And you know what I think about this. I think, actually, if we want to be able to do this, we have to change the electoral system. We have to completely change our constitution, uh, change democracy within it. We knew it. And that means giving sovereignty to the regions, giving sovereignty to Scotland. And if you want to, I think England would be better broken up into a series of sovereign regions that were kind of, if you want a federal structure, possibly, but it needs to be pulled sovereignty of which Scotland will be part of. That's my personal preference. Um, ultimately, devolution still means a Westmin Westminster-centric, uh, highly centralised government that doles out power. I think we can be bigger and bolder than that. And I think we have to, given the balkanisation of the United Kingdom that's taking place. So, you know, look, I know you want me to talk about Andy. Let's see what happens. Two years is a long way. Lots could happen in that two years. It's possible that that's, uh, that's possible that that is an outcome. But are we really suggesting that for the next two years we're going to look for uh, the, the king of the north to come down and take control and sort things out and make our lives better? I'm I'm slightly pessimistic about that, but you know I'm open to it. Um, do I think he could do a better job, possibly, than Keir Starmer? Um, I'm not going to make any other comment than that. But you know he's up there, we're down there, and uh, he's just got another four four years as uh, mayor of, um, of Greater Manchester. So it is academic, you know. It's possible. It's hypothetically, it would be a nice to have possibly, but it's speculation, isn't it? Well, we've got we've got our headline. Clive Lewis, Andy Burnham could possibly be a better leader than Keir Starmer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a challenge for you, for you, Clive. Labour member here. I want the Socialist Campaign Group to step up and start offering real opposition to the current leadership. So far, you're not. And it's not good enough. What do you say to Saul? I think the campaign group is obviously I think you have to acknowledge that the campaign group after losing the leadership um, and it was a pretty kind of spectacular um, kind of implosion that took place because the SCG split uh, on the issues of Brexit. Um, there were arguments over a number of areas. The SCG isn't a homogenous whole. There are different parts of it. Um, and I think it's going to take time for that to be able to get back onto its feet uh, and to get back and do and to and to work effectively. I'm not saying it can't do better. I think it should. 
Um, but I don't think it's necessarily the case that we should expect it to be up and running and, and back on its feet within a year. I know people would like to see that, but there's a, there's it's it's tough, frankly. And there there are there are a variety of views and ideas about how you proceed uh, on the SCG, and not everyone's in agreement. Um, but I understand that frustration completely. I wish I had a better answer for you. I don't. Um, maybe I mean I think I'm speaking at the uh, Socialist Campaign Group uh, rally this week. I think we're going to have to start upping our game, moving on from rallies, talking into Zoom, and and maybe actually organising. You know, look. They're going to be a series of selections. I, you know, I think you know we should be working with trade unions and other groups to be able to start thinking about how do we start winning some of those selections. Because if these selections go the way of the right, then you know ultimately all of the new people coming in in the foreseeable set of elections in 2023, 2024 uh, will will not be um, amenable to the kind of politics that I think uh, the kind of Labour Party that I want to see. So we have to really get our act together on that, and I think that's something where we can. I just simply don't think that standing up and uh, slamming the leadership day in, day out is necessarily, it might feel gratifying. I don't necessarily think that's the only way that you can fight back. There are other ways that you can fight back by organising and making sure that there are structural things put in place, which actually mean in the longer run, the left is is stronger and in a better position. That can be anything from organising for the NEC elections uh, through to selections. But I think that's where energies need to go rather than simply just looking like puffing your chest out and looking like you're, you're holding Keir to account. You know, that's part of it, but actually some of it is about organisational elements and that hasn't been as strong as it could be and I would agree with that. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We're going to let you go, but it is always an absolute pleasure to have you on the Thank show. Thank you very much. I'd love you to be here. Take care. Cheers. Let's go quickly to a brief COVID update because we had two very good bits of news today on the COVID front. So the first is that for the first time since last March, that's over a year ago, there were zero daily COVID deaths recorded in England in the past 24 hours, which is amazing. Um, Really, really good news there. The second is that England's unlocking is on track. Boris Johnson today gave a press conference confirming the changes to COVID regulations that will come into place next Monday. With deaths and hospitalizations at their lowest level since last July, uh, the, and the UK's four chief medical officers today agreeing a reduction in the alert level, the data now support moving to step three in England from next Monday, the 17th of May. This means the rule of six or two households that is applied outdoors will now apply indoors, and the limit for outdoor meetings will increase to 30. From next Monday, you'll be able to sit inside a pub and inside a restaurant. You'll be able to go to the cinema, and children will be able to use indoor play areas. It's great news. The the chief scientific officers feel confident that this is able to happen. Obviously, the things that are now being announced, the indoor dining, going inside in a pub, all of this stuff is allowed. This is when It's no surprise that the whole system of of unlocking slowly was each time they unlock, it gets more and more risky. But opening up indoor areas is a fairly risky thing to do in terms of virus transmission. The reason it's not particularly worrying for them to do, the reason they feel comfortable doing it at this point is that so many people are vaccinated and there is so little COVID out and about. So, I mean, I'm just really pleased about this. Dahlia, what do you make of this? Basically, from next Monday, we're going to go back to something that looks a hell of a lot more like normality exciting i think it's i'm i'm still feeling tentative about it you know someone who's not been vaccinated yet i don't think i'll be doing indoor dining quite yet um and i do think that the but i do think that one thing that is always at the back of my mind and this is not to kind of be a dampener or anything at all 
But one thing that is at the back of my mind is just the unpredictability of this virus. You know, when we look at particularly um, if I look at, you know, my home country where a lot of my family live in Egypt, where we had, you know, last summer, we, you know, we basically not had that many cases, especially over the summer. And many people thought that it was because, you know, of the heat that, you know, people aren't necessarily having to be inside um, or something about the heat, you know, kills the virus, etc. And now we are seeing for no explicit reason, really, a massive uptick in in cases. But obviously, you know, the, the fact that so many people have been vaccinated in this country means that we are on the pathway to a really good, like a really, really good summer. I think for me personally, I still feel a little bit uncomfortable about indoor dining. But once I'm vaccinated, I will be in all of your homes partying and, and wearing my, everyone's like commenting on my outfit. It's like, I'm just trying to ch- like, will summer into into existence because this weather is is driving me crazy but yeah i mean i think it looks really really good for so many of us and it, again it's a testament to the nhs running things rather than shitty outsourced private companies it's the only thing in the government's covid response that has gone well um it's the thing that they're taking a lot of credit for but it is the work of the NHS and of the organizational impacts of having an infrastructure that is not run for profit, but is actually run for, um, you know, to achieve its objective, which is to care for the health of the population. And also through that kind of centralized organizing infrastructure. And this is, again, what I say when, you know, what the role of a Labour Party should be is to narrativize this in a way that demonstrates the way that the Tories look at the world is fundamentally damaging um, and that the successes of the pandemic are not Boris Johnson's, but they belong to the NHS, which the Conservatives are constantly trying to undermine. And so missing that opportunity is, again, an example of that lack of vision, that lack of creativity, that lack of judgment, um, because there is a way that even though this looks like a Tory win, there is a way that this can be understood for what it is, which is a victory of the NHS. A victory for us all in the sense that we can now finally go out and if it rains, we don't have to cancel our plans, which is, you know, I'm hyped about. Even though I do I do take your point. When when gyms were allowed to reopen, I was thinking I'm going to wait for my vaccine. Now I'm still waiting for my vaccine, but I feel like I probably will have a drink inside after next Monday. But I think the whole point is, yeah, everyone everyone should assess their own risk at this point in time. I think going slowly is, is the way. As ever, um, what makes this show possible? Um, in particular is your regular support if you are a regular donor thank you so much you make this all possible if not please do go to navaramedia.com slash support and the equivalent of one hour's wage a month we're going to go on to our final story now israeli police raided the al-aqsa mosque in jerusalem injuring hundreds of worshippers now of those injured according to the palestinian red crescent at least seven are in a critical condition. Many more are in, are in hospital. Now, the raid sparked widespread outcry because of the significance of the mosque, which is considered the third holiest site in Islam. Footage of the raid has been widely shared on social media, with police using stun grenades and rubber-covered metal bullets to clear worshippers from the site. This is the third night that Israeli police and soldiers have attacked people praying there. <laughs> Now, 
So why is this happening now? Well, the raids this morning were thought to be an attempt by Israeli authorities to clear the holy site before a march by right-wing Zionists that was due to take place. And that was the annual Jerusalem Day March. It marks the date that Israel began its illegal capture and occupation of East Jerusalem following the 1967 war. As far as I understand, in the end, um, that didn't go forward um, today. Um, the raid also takes place off the back of days of protests against the eviction of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah, a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. Um, there, Palestinians are being expelled from their homes to make way for Jewish settlers. It's a practice which has been ongoing in the city for decades. Um, when it comes to, to that particular dispute or, or that uh, eviction, there was another video which has gone really, really viral recently, which is an interaction which really shows the power dynamics at play in those, in those evictions. Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you're not you're, It's you're, easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Yeah, you are helping. stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one, no one uh, uh, is allowed to steal it, Yammi. Really appalling, which is why, you know, that traveled far because of, you know, just how outrageous that was. And um, there is one more outrage currently ongoing in Jerusalem, which frames the storming of, of Al-Aqsa. This is or the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, this is the ongoing violent attempts by Israeli police to stop Palestinians gathering at the city's Damascus gates during Ramadan. Now, this Sky report gives an idea of the context there. These steps are steps which uh, Palestinians uh, who live in this part of East Jerusalem gather in for Ramadan when their fast comes to an end each evening. They gather on these steps. Uh, and what we have seen tonight has been the same uh, for the past few nights. F for, for no logical reason, the Israeli police are moving in and in a very blunt way, controlling, as they say, the crowd, a crowd which doesn't, uh, as far as we've seen, need any control. These are families. Yep, lots of young people as well, young boys uh, here too, uh, who are uh, at the end of their Ramadan fast are gathering here. We've seen uh, over the course of the evening, water cannon filled with a rancid skunk, as it's known, uh, is, um, is sprayed at people, sprayed a little bit earlier on at, at uh, young boys who were gathered up at the wall here. Rancid water being sprayed at people who were just gathering after praying. It's horrible to watch. Um, to discuss the raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the repression at the Damascus gates, I spoke earlier to Akram Salhab, a Palestinian from Jerusalem who is currently based there. And this is part of the Israelis' broader policy of attempting to change the, the character of Jerusalem and indeed to change the character of the country as a whole. Um, Israeli settler colonial policies since Israel's inception have been designed to get the maximum amount of land with the minimum number of Palestinians on that land. As with all settler colonial projects, that take place, takes place in a variety of ways. And what we've seen in Jerusalem is an attempt to change over time the demographic makeup of the city. And the important background to this is that, you know, we'll talk about different kinds of policies, land confiscation, house demolitions, the discriminatory planning, the revocation of Palestinian residency rights in Jerusalem. But what happens around Ramadan, Easter, which has just been Orthodox Easter here in Jerusalem, is that the Israeli state, despite all of um, what it's been doing over the past years in Jerusalem, cannot change the fact that when it comes to Ramadan or when it comes to Easter, it's very clearly a Palestinian Arab city. 
all of the streets are filled with Palestinians. All the shops are open. Palestinian music, Arab music, Arabic music is playing, and Palestinians are out in huge numbers throughout the city. And it's very clear that we have a presence in this city. And despite everything they've attempted to do, we're still here and we're still standing up for our rights, and we still have our claims to sovereignty. This is what Israel cannot stand, and so everything that's brought us up to this point has been an attempt to them by the Israeli authorities to destroy any Palestinian public presence in the city. Firstly, by putting barriers at Damascus Gate. So Palestinians would often, after Iftar, would go and sit at Damascus Gate and have shisha pipes or hang out or dance or just spend time there um, or wander up Salah Dean Street, which is where many Palestinian businesses and shops are located. The Israelis put barriers at Damascus Gate, which prevented people from sitting there. And that was the first that's what began the, and in Palestinians rejecting that was what began the first confrontations that happened during um, Ramadan. The Israeli authorities also attacked Palestinian Christians going into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. They wouldn't allow them in and they were beating families, children, um, and others trying to get in to pray on Orthodox Easter. And on Orthodox Easter, Palestinian Christians are different um, uh, branches of uh, Christianity which are represented in it walk up and down with scout groups in the old city, filling it with music and sound and an obvious presence of Palestinians being there. And this, again, is not something the Israelis are willing to sit by and, and let happen. So as well as their claim to sovereignty and as well as a forcible transfer of people, they want to make sure that Palestinians feel cowed, feel marginalized, and don't feel they can assert themselves or have any presence at all in the city. You described very effectively there how what we're witnessing now fits into a logic of settler colonialism. I mean, in terms of recent history, are we seeing, is what we're seeing now the norm and it's just that the international media attention is, is more on it? Or is there something exceptional about what, what, what's going on now? And if the latter, why are we seeing this ramping up of repression? Actually, what's happened over the past few weeks has to be interpreted as something very positive. Because everything that I've described is happening in Jerusalem every single day, every single week, every single month of every single year since Israel began its occupation of the city. And it changes in speed or direction, but it continues in one inexorable, towards one inexorable aim, which is the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the city. So it's much better that we have moments where Palestinians are resisting that rather than that happen in silence you know, with the international community, quote unquote, having their attention elsewhere. And the Palestinian resistance to that is cowed by arrests, by um, other repressive measures in the city. So it's much better that what we're able, uh, the, the Palestinians in the city are able to confront this. And what's happened over the past few days now, the past few weeks, is that we've seen the entire city rise up in the most extraordinary way. If you walk down the streets, you see every single street corner, police and soldiers, but young men standing defiantly, standing their ground. You see um, people singing in the streets. You see people doing debke at the entrances to the old city. The other day, the Israelis attempted to prevent Palestinians from inside uh, Palestine, 1948 Palestine, from coming to pray at uh, or during Laysal Qadr, which is uh, the most holy night of Ramadan, which is a few evenings ago. The Israelis prevented them from coming and they, they got off their buses and they started walking towards Jerusalem and Palestinians from the, from Jerusalem went to collect them in their cars and bring them here. You've seen this enormous explosion, this civic spirit across the city with people from all walks of life out in force and saying that we have a right to be here and saying that we, whatever happens, we're going to fight for that. 
for our right because the alternative is a complete expulsion and ethnic cleansing and ending of our way of life in this city. So actually what we've seen is an incredibly positive response to something that's continued in different ways and through different means by the Israelis throughout the entirety of their occupation and indeed to all Palestinian areas since its inception in 1948. So um, I think you have to definitely regard this as an incredibly positive thing. And I don't think it represents an escalation by the Israelis whatsoever. It's just a, a continuation of the same policy, sometimes ramping things up, sometimes slowing them down as they see their opportunities in the international arena develop and change. That was Akram Salhab speaking to me from Jerusalem. I also spoke today to Muna Jajani, who is currently based in London, but who has family at risk of eviction in Sheikh Juras. That's the community I was talking about before who are at risk of, of being evicted by by Jewish settlers. Now, the community of Sheikh Jarrah is, is largely made up of families who were resettled in Jerusalem by the UN and the Jordanian government in 1956 after having been expelled from the city during the Nakba in 1948. There are now hundreds of Palestinian families living in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, when I spoke to Muna, um, she began by e- explaining to me um, the historical context which explains why those homes are now under threat. 1967, the Six-Day War happened again. Israel occupied the rest of Palestine. And today, Palestinians there, Palestinian Jerusalemites, found, them, found themselves mere residents of a city that they belong to. Uh, and being a mere resident means that you don't have citizenship rights. You're under military occupation. But you are confronted with a new uh, lexicon and a new way of, of living in the place. And what happened uh, a few years after the Six-Day War is that the residents of Sheikh Zergah, uh, the, the, this compound we talk about, they started receiving lawsuits filed against them by settler organizations uh, claiming that uh, this land uh, is is theirs, uh, is the ownership of the settler organization, and that uh, the Palestinian families uh, are there unlawfully. And of course, the Pal- all, all the Palestinian residents of Sheikh Jarrah are rightful owners of, of, of their houses. I remember being a child hearing about the looming threat of evictions from the t- from the 1980s, we've been hearing about uh, about these lawsuits against us, but always with the hope that we shall prevail because our evidence is very clear that we belong to this uh, land, we belong to Sheikh Jarrah, and we have all the evidence to show that. The, the Israeli court system has always dismissed our evidence uh, and, and taken the side of the Israeli settlers, who, although their evidence has never has been nullified, it has been uh, really shown to be forged. Sheikh Jarrah connects different Palestinian uh, communities and neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. It is kind of our our like anchor, our heart, the heart of the city of Jerusalem. So the fact that we are today witnessing a court decision that has uh, that has been decided to to evict us from our house is totally uh, totally illegal decision. And uh, we're trying all our best to to confront it, contest it, whether uh, whether through through these courts being on the ground uh, and seeing how the uh, Jerusalem residents have been protecting the city in all their might, whatever they can do, being being there, being present, uh, and making a point, uh, reaching out on social media. That was Muna Jajani speaking um, about the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, Dalia, I want to go to you quickly for your for your thoughts on on what we've just heard in that section. This is the problem, isn't it, with the stigmatization of anyone in public life who cares about internationalism. 
especially looking at the show that we've had today and sort of finishing with these scenes and finishing with, you know, what Akram and, and Muno were just saying. And, and, you know, after we've just talked about, you know, how with this Labour Party stuff, how it feels like we as sort of young, precarious people are getting so aggressively pushed out of po political decision making um, and so pushed out of power. When, when you hear about the resistances in Sheikh Jarrah to these kinds of to these evictions and that long history of, 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 of fighting back, it makes me think that we just don't have an option but to have hope and to resist. Um, you know, if if the the residents of Sheikh Jarrah can can fight in the face of literal dispossession, you know, dispossession that has the backing of local courts, of local army, of the state, then then we have to. You know, hope is not a a a feeling, it's not an emotion, and we can't rely on hope only when we feel it. It's a virtue and it's a duty to which we are which we are bound and i think as well you know the reason that these kinds of moments hold such significance for so many people is because it represents in such explicit terms a phenomenon that is true for so many oppressed people around the world um, it demonstrates how, you know, through bureaucratic means, through cultural means, through economic, militaristic, geographic techniques, you know, as Akram uh, outlined, entire communities can be stripped of their personhood and they can be subjected to the sharpest edges of violence, of state violence. And, you know, what, what we see through things like the clearing of public space from markers of Arab culture or Palestinian culture, the denying of planning permissions to Palestinian residents and then turning around and saying, well, you know, you're here illegally so we can evict you. It's, it's, so this is, you know, one of many of the many clarifying lenses through which we can understand how entire communities are dehumanized and are stripped of their personhood. And then all manners of violence against them can be justified. But it's also close to the hearts of so many people because of the insistence on living in the face of that, on the insistence on hoping and creating in the face of that kind of struggle. So, it's the story of so many self-determination struggles around the world. It's the story of communities that insist on their own humanity in the face of dehumanization, in the face of their humanity being stripped away. That is why I think it's so important to focus on the fact that there is a poetic and there is an ethic of, of hope in the face of that. And so we, we don't have a choice, especially here in the UK, to abdicate on, on our responsibility of protecting those who are the most marginalized from political life a, a, a really appropriate way to end the show dahlia gabriel thank you so much for for joining me on this monday evening thank you for having me <laughs> and thank you all for watching for all your comments and all your kind donations we'll be back on wednesday for now you've been watching tisky sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarra media go to navarramedia.com support